Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Writers on Film, the only podcast dedicated to books on cinema. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. Uh, today, I'm delight. Oh, sugar and shits. Okay, let's start again. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Writers on Film. My name's John Bleasdale. I'm a film critic and writer, and today I'm delighted to welcome Sean Hogan to the show. Sean is a film director and a screenwriter. He's uh, made films such as uh, Little Deaths, The Devil's Business, Lie Still. Uh, and he was involved also in the documentary Future Shock, the story of 2000 AD, which uh, which was absolutely perfect for my, someone brought up with my childhood. Um, but the reason we're talking to him today, or the reason I'm talking to him today, and you're listening, so I guess uh, you're involved in the conversation as well. But the reason I'm talking to him today is because he's got a new book out, a follow up to his book of sort of cinematic metafiction England Screaming his new book is called Twilight's Last Screaming and uh, as you will hear from the conversation I am nudging him gently and not so gently into the uh, into the the proposal of making this into a trilogy because they're so good um, they're basically uh, a series of short stories which are interlinked and which take as their premise uh, the main characters of uh, of films, of horror films uh, specifically, nightmare films, if you like, if you want to use Kim Newman's 
uh, sort of generic qualification. Uh, anyway, it, the conversation's brilliant. The books are superb. I've I've been a big fan ever since the first one. So um, so I'm really happy to get the opportunity to talk to Sean about these. If uh, you like the episode, please remember to to do all the things that that, that make the the show more visible to other people. Don't be selfish. Don't hoard it for yourself. Let other people know. Write reviews, like, subscribe. If you want to follow me on Twitter and you don't already do so, you can do. I'll allow that at Dr. Jonty D R J O N T Y. But before you do any of that, please enjoy the conversation. I was talking to my publisher about doing press for the book i'd sort of said oh there's a couple of podcasts i listened to that would be really you know good to try and get on um and and yours was one of them and then you ended up sort of getting in touch anyway which was great because the other podcast we uh we tried completely ignored us so you know. oh no oh well <laughs> what, a, what a bunch of terrible well i was gonna say a, not, a naughty word there but yeah <laughs> Yeah, you know, you know what I mean. Well, we can say naughty words. It's my podcast. Who cares? <laughs> so I, I, I want to talk about your new book, obviously. But let's let's start with. Uh, see, I've got I've got the hardback. That's fantastic. I, I, it's such a beautiful cover as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was it was very. I mean, I, I, you know, I've known Graham for a, for a little while, and um, he sort of yeah did me a big favor by, by doing that cover. Um, so yeah, no, it worked out really well. What was your what was your motivation? Uh, what was your sort of inspiration for for the first book? The, with the first book, which I, I should uh, tell listeners is England Screaming. Well, it sort of started by you know as I, as I've said many times, you know, kind of acknowledging uh, your inspirations. It, it started way back when I read uh, David Thompson's book Suspects which does a very similar thing with film noir characters. Um, and although I think the books are actually sort of ended up being quite different, that was certainly the inspiration where I kind of got the basic template from. And I'd always thought, oh, you know, it'd be great to do a horror version of that. I think it would work really well. But, you know, back then I was, I was kind of a jobbing filmmaker screenwriter and I didn't really have any particular ambitions about writing a novel or, any sort of prose fiction really and it was really i, I only when I, I got randomly approached about uh writing a, a, a monograph uh for a new series of of monographs published by electric Dreamhouse. uh and the editor sort of basically sort of gave me free reign said you know i'd love to have you write something for it um and pick any film you'd like and i kind of just thought well you know that'll be something off the bucket list i can say i've written a book you know uh and i ended up sort of randomly choosing deathline for he sent me a list of titles that he was interested in doing but he sort of said you know obviously feel free to choose anything else but kind of deathline leapt out at me and i and so i said no i'll, I'll do deathline and i didn't even really think about why i wanted to do it other than it was a film i liked but it was a very instinctive decision and you know, then the writing of it got slightly delayed. And in, during the delay, I was, I kind of started thinking about exactly what I was going to do and thought, well, I could write a standard, you know, typical monograph, but there are people who do that much better than I will. 
and I'd really like to do something different. And I kind of flashed back to suspects and I thought, well, I could do something like that. I could do kind of a metafictional approach and like look at the film from the inside out. And so that's kind of what I started doing. And one of the things I love about Deathline is, is Donald Pleasance's performance in it, which I think is great and kind of quite unlike anything else in genre cinema. And that character is just so captivating that I really wanted to write in that voice. So I ended up writing his diary. Um, and, you know, it turned out pretty well and the editor seemed happy with it. And after that, I kind of thought, well, maybe I could write that book. Uh, and I thought about it for another, it was probably another couple of years and then ended up having some time in my hands. And I went back to the editor and, you know, who sort of said to me, oh, if you do ever write that book, I'll publish it. And so I went back to him and, you know, sent him a couple of sample chapters and said, look, are you still interested? And he was like, absolutely. And then I just sat down and did it with no real idea of what I was doing and how I was going to do it <laughs> and what the point of it all was. But in the end, you know, I kind of had this book, England Screaming, on my hands. And it's such a, I mean, Deathline's a film I only recently watched. I know it's a, it's from, uh, <coughs> excuse me, it's from the 70s, uh, I'm, I'm guessing. Yeah, very early 70s. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Donald Pleasance, yeah, his character just, it's so, it's so out there. I mean, it's yeah. just like, it's like he's trying to escape the film almost. No, absolutely. It's, it's, you know, he is kind of in a different film and there are, it's, it's fascinating to look at it because there are all sorts of reasons why it shouldn't work. Because, you know, if you look at it in a, a sort of a strictly kind of by the book screenwriting sense, his character actually doesn't achieve anything in the course of the film. He doesn't do any real actual detecting. He doesn't change the course of the plot at all. And there's no real need for him to be there. But at the same time, it would be so much lesser a film without him. Yeah, you're just sort of following him around. He's, he's sort of like as baffled as the audience for most yeah. of the film. <laughs> and when you, so when you started sort of blocking out, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And what are my, what are my films? I mean, what I loved about the, the, the book is how it brings to prominence quite a few films that I don't think necessarily get the love and affection they deserve. So for instance, a major character in your book is uh, the Richard Burton character from the Medusa Touch. And not only do I love the Medusa Touch, I even read the novel that it was based on. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Peter Van Greenaway, I think yes. it's uh, uh, wrote it. Um, not to be confused with Peter Greenway, the uh, the film director. But yeah, how did you sort of go about sort of picking out these are the ones that are going to be really important and these are the ones that uh, I, I want to look at? Yeah, it was it was a very kind of uh, organic process, really, because I, I sort of when I decided I was going to write it, I thought I could spend months planning this out. You know, I had sort of visions of me drawing, you know, pinning a big sheet of paper to the wall and trying to draw out a roadmap of all the characters and how they connected to each other. And I just Hunt, thought hunting I, the serial killer. Sort of yeah, I know. And I just thought I could spend six months just doing that. And that would be insane. So I just thought, no, I'm going to start writing it and see what happens. So I obviously had a few characters in mind and uh, definitely the, the Mauler characters was one of them because I too love that film and love that character in particular. I think mm. it's such a, he's such a great character and the way that he's both simultaneously, you both kind of sympathise with what he's saying and at the same time recognise that he is a monster but he, you know, he's a monster that's given his chance to sort of espouse his viewpoint. And you kind of think, yeah, he's got a, got a point. 
Um, so I knew I wanted to write him. Um, but yeah, I just kind of started writing and seeing where it took me. And I was watching films as I was writing. So things would present themselves just, just as I was in the middle of the book. I'd watch another, another film and go, oh, yeah, I know. I can, I can see how I can use that. But I knew, yeah, I knew Mauler would be a big part of it. And it was just partly just wanting to write in that voice because mm. I just loved that character so much. And I thought there's so much more that can be done with him. Um, and so it really was you know, letting the characters kind of guide me where I needed to go. You know, it was, this, I, knew, I knew that, um, you know, Damien Thorne would be a big part of it as well, just because of everything that character represents. And it kind of suddenly came into focus for me that Mauler was sort of the antithesis of that in some ways. And so it ended up being this kind of struggle between the two of them, which obviously has continued on into the new book. Yeah, uh, yeah, the... the... I guess that's a, a really interesting way of looking at the films as well as as like what's at stake, you know, who who are the most power, you know, some some films, very little is at stake, just the lives of a couple of people who happen to be in an underground station at the wrong time of night. And yeah. then in other films, it's like, oh, the universe. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and it was, I, I, again, this was, this was kind of a case of me finding out what the book was as I was writing it. Because, you know, while I was writing it, I was kind of, you know, um, in a state of uh, heightened disgust about everything that was going on with this country at the time. And I, I slowly began to realise that that was creeping into the book. And that was essentially what the book was about. I was sort of looking at the state of England through the lens of these films. And so... It ended up being a book very much about the kind of state of the nation, uh, you know, sort of in the run up to Brexit without ever me wanting to mention that word. It's sort of about it without ever being really, you know, about it. That, that sad little word, as uh, somebody referred to it, the first time it ever appeared in print, it was referred to as that sad little word. <laughs> um, which was pretty prophetic. That's a bit of John Mauler right there. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> you can imagine Richard Burton with that sad little word. <laughs> Going for it. I mean, yeah, I, 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 I totally, I totally get what you're saying about the John Mauler character. That that sort of uh, anti. You know, there's this brilliant speech in the film that he gives in the courtroom about the Imperial War Museum, and. Uh, and you just absolutely, you know, I will bring the whole unholy edifice down on their unworthy heads. You know, it, you know, it's like who doesn't want to knock down Westminster Abbey every now and again? Or, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you know. yeah. During the jubilee, I imagine your feelings about Britain have have improved vastly. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's sort of like, well, yeah, that was kind of what what I thought came to pass, and. It's really no better than it was when I was writing the book. In fact, it's, you know, much worse in many ways. Yeah, um, yeah you know, I've had um, a few uh, Amazon reviews of the book with people, you know, moaning about the political <laughs> standpoint of the book and whatever else. And I'm like, well, you know, tell me I'm wrong, please. <laughs> yeah, yeah, prove me wrong. Prove me wrong. <laughs> um, well, I mean, that also, I think, seems to be an argument for these films as well that to me to my mind elevates them that if you if you start thinking of them as existing not as just genre exercises but existing in a wider universe and and these people are not just sort of stereotyped sort of engines to make the plot happen but they're actual characters who have a history and have a future then 
it, it kind of, to me it sort of elevates it's a really fun exercise to see what can survive that kind of analysis or extrapolation yeah i hope so i mean obviously one of the one of the things for me with the books is that there's there's obviously an element of kind of fun in them and just the sort of fanish thing of of playing with these characters and introducing them to each other and seeing what kind of sparks result but yeah they're also very much a kind of investigation of what genre films are and how they reflect the world you know it's 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 obviously like a truism by now to sort of say well you know genre films very much kind of reflect the tenor of their times um but at the, you know, at the same time, it's like, well, you just kind of think a lot of these films are not given their proper due. And it's really interesting to go back and look at them in that sense of like how they reflect the times they were made in, the country they were made in, and the kind of collective unconscious, which is what, you know, genre films reflect that so well. Yeah, I think also there's an industrial aspect to it in that these films are not the huge budget films that have to absolutely break the bank. They're smaller, and so they have to some degree an element of more they don't they don't have to be as popularly pleasing you know deadline was never gonna you know nobody making that film ever thought uh this is gonna this is, we're on the way to the oscars lads yeah you know? yeah um, but it, but it's quite a radical little film all the same you know it's sort of made by politically engaged people and it's and i think that's kind of one of the things that's helped it last for 50 years Absolutely. Were there, were there any films that you wanted to include, but just proved resistant to the to that process? Um, there are always films I want to include. It's um, I, it's it's kind of hard to think back to England screaming now about. I can't think anything of offhand about certain films I wanted in that one, but certainly with the new book, there are definitely films that I wanted to include. Um, sort of like a lot of recent fairly recent interesting more kind of indie genre movies stuff like uh absentia i was i was that was always on my kind of list i could just never quite figure out what to do with it um i really like the films of um uh moorhead and benson and uh, the end list was one i was kind of wanted to include but mm. Uh, and The Empty Man was another recent one that I thought was really interesting. But a lot of these films kind of have their own sort of closed off mythos, which some, which sometimes makes them difficult to incorporate into mine. So you know, every now and then you just kind of think, I, I can't really make that work. But yeah, there are, there are you know, I, I always start out with a long list of films and kind of, you know, start rewatching them. And, you know, sometimes things just spark and other times you're like, I just, I don't know what to do with this film as much as I'd like to include it, you know, mm. which is why I always, you know, I do try and include stuff that I like or that I, th I think is interesting. And, but sometimes there are films that creep in there that I don't actually like very much, but they're sort of, you know, the characters or the plots or whatever just kind of play off nicely with stuff that I know I'm going to do. So they sort of creep in there despite all my best efforts. Oh, give me an example. You've got to give me an example now. Oh, well, I mean, you know, in the new one, um, The Sentinel is in there. The Sentinel's an absolutely dreadful film. It's right. like there's no bones about it. It's not boring by any means, um, but it's a, it's a truly, truly dreadful film. But it would just fit in nicely to some of the stuff that I was doing. So it kind of made its way in there. And if you'd ever told me that I was going to include a Michael Winner film in one of my books, I would have. You know. <laughs> that should be the rule number one of writing about film. Never write about Michael Winner if you can avoid it. <laughs>
Yeah, no. Did he ever do a good film? I'm trying to think if he did. Like, I've not seen, um, what was it, The Comedians that he did with Oliver Reed and uh, and Frank Spencer? No, I haven't. Like, I think some of the early ones are, are mm. meant to be decent, but I, I, I don't, I'm not sure I've ever seen a good Michael Wiener film. No, no. And some of the later ones are just abhorrent. Abhorrent. Well, let's move on to the new book, because it's fresh in your head, and... and, and um and it's fresh in mine as well having just read it although i will make one caveat having just read it i always skip stories if i haven't seen the film oh okay <laughs> I, I i always think that's, that's i always cheating, think you can't do that <laughs> no but it's i've seen a lot of the films so i mean it's not that many to tell you the truth it's not yeah. it's not helping that much in terms of sort of like there's no way i could this is a this is a, a, a bigger uh, book than the, the first one as well. What was the? Was that just because America's bigger? You have you have more. Yeah, that was that was certainly that was certainly part of it because I you know again going back to when I first had the idea about writing the book, um, I initially thought of it as a book about America before I wrote England Screaming. You know, my my impulse was to write a book about American horror films, just simply because those they were they were so formative for me. A lot of those films, and I think that just the sheer scale of it was one of the things that put me off. Mm. I just thought I can't ever do this; it's just too much. Um, and that was kind of why I eventually started off with with British genre films. Um, so it was partly having done it once, I felt more confident, and partly yes, just the sheer amount of films. You know, when I when I wrote England Screaming, I kind of got to a point where I felt I was sort of at a natural stopping point. I kind of thought, I've done enough. This is mm. this is the book. Um, whereas with with the new one, um, I think I could have I could still be writing it now. You know, <laughs> it was just like this could go on and on and on. But uh, you know, I thought I'd I'd, I'd maybe done enough. Um, but yeah, it was. So yeah, it was just partly the sheer amount of films, and partly kind of. The idea occurred to me that it was going to both be a kind of shadow history of America, whilst mm. also continuing on the story of the first book. So I kind of had that that sort of structure presented it to me, where it was going to be two books in one. The first book was going to be going to be about America, and then the story would come back into focus during the end of that first book, and then the second book would be a sort of very much about now and you know pick up the story threads from the first one when i started reading the book and of course you have a prologue and and everything and I'm, i don't want to spoil it for anybody who's who's so i won't but when you when you got at the beginning and it, it was like oh we're, we're starting with the witch so we're we're starting right at the sort of the, the puritan founding fathers of america i just loved that um sort of sense of history that okay it's not going to be we're not going to be jumping around we, we will do later but from the very beginning, we're going to go through a sort of historical chronology almost. Yeah, that kind of, uh, again, I sort of started the book having a few, you know, narrative points in mind that I was going to hit. But, uh, you know, I thought, well, it worked first time around, so I'm going to approach it very much the same way. I'm just kind of going to start writing, not in any particular order, and just sort of see what suggests itself. And I kind of, I started off, having in mind the fact that I was going to use High Plains Drifter and use that character as a kind of bridge between the past and the present and that sort of like idea of frontier justice being carried into the modern world. 
and I wrote that chapter fairly on and I kind of suddenly thought, yeah, but there's there's more here. I can kind of go back into the Old West and do a whole sequence of stories, you know, because there's a lot of interesting kind of genre Westerns. And I thought, well, it'll be then it'll be a bit of an, an American history lesson. Um, and I suddenly kind of got very into that idea. So I started watching loads of horror Westerns and kind of coming up with this whole sequence and I kind of thought yeah okay that's that, that's it that's how the book's going to start we're going to go way back and come slowly up into the modern day absolutely and, and you I, I watched uh, well this is one of the things about me not wanting to skip chapters I I watched Ravenous in order to read the, 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 the story <laughs> about Ravenous I was like I'm not gonna I'm not gonna I know Ravenous is a good film and it's a it's a, a hole that I haven't I haven't yet seen it. It's a hole in my my filmography, if you like, and uh, so so there's no way I'm going to read the story and have it spoiled. So I'll have to watch the film and then then read the story. <laughs> um, well, I only hope that you didn't miss any chapters that uh, kind of had important plot points or whatever in them. You know, that confused you later on. But no, but what I like about that is that you could you, uh, there are, there are definitely films that I now want to see because you've included them. And this was the same with England Screaming. I remember there was the... What's the Alan Bates film? The Shout, The Yell. Oh, yeah, The Shout's great. The Shout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I hadn't seen it. So I had to skip that and then dug, dug out the film and watched it and then went back and read the story. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a cross-fertilization. I think it's very uh, cross-pollination. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice. As I say, the, the books are not only intended to be that and that and but it's nice to be able to sort of try and include stuff that you think is interesting and maybe slightly overlooked and and have and it's you know have that expose it to people that's that's definitely a sort of bonus aspect of them and the thing about the cowboy uh sort of section if you like that the thing that always amazes me about the westerns is that they're sort of they're period films which are kind of ahistorical if you like because I, I, this is just a very naive viewer's your viewpoint, but when I was watching Westerns as a kid, I had absolutely no idea when they were set, you know? Yeah. They, they would just... They rode horses and fired guns. <laughs> it was like, you know... And, and obviously there's, you know, there's a certain span of time in the American West as well, and I was actually... I spent a lot of time figuring out roughly when each of those films was set in relation to each other so that I could try and get the kind of chronology right. Um, and there were, yeah, I was sort of constantly adjusting this. And obviously some of the films are not very specific. So I was kind of like, well, this is probably around then. And, you know, so there was a lot of shuffling stuff about. Um, but, you know, I tried to be sort of play fair with that. And certainly, you know, one of the films I included in there uh the great silence is is actually based sort of around a very specific time and place um you know even though it's a spaghetti western and you know not not shot in america so i sort of tried to play fair with that as well and, and kind of mention those historical aspects yeah yeah it's usually centered around uh, is it before during or after the civil war tends to be the mm. main sort of historical marker if you will but i i always remember watching the wild bunch and they're firing like automatic weapons and thinking what the yeah and there's a car and <laughs> yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, know, I know that film is all about that the end of the west yeah but, you know uh but absolutely ludicrous and wonderful leap that you make with the stranger 
to yep. the present day. And I was, uh, chapeau, chapeau, I thought, as I was reading <laughs> Brilliant, brilliant piece of work. Because it, 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 it kind of works thematically as well. It kind of says, okay, these are not actually that different characters. Yeah, you know, you're, it's, you're, just, you're kind of talking about Clint Eastwood as an icon and what he represents in cinema. Uh, and it's you know that's 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 one of the fun things about these books is is being able to make those kind of leaps and sometimes look at you know two different characters from two different films and go well they're they're the same guy you know essentially and you can you know they're genre novels so you can always find a reason for that and I could just kind of thought yeah well you know the stranger is a ghost it's you know it's maybe he just decides to stick around and takes on another name you know. Absolutely, I, lo- I just love the way that name pops up, and you're like, "Wait, hang on a minute, wait a second, isn't that?" And then... <laughs> it's just so. Whoa, 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 whoa. wait. <laughs> um, that, that just, just brilliant. And I, uh, well, one, one question I did have was as well. Uh, you said earlier that certain films have their own mythos, and they yeah. and you don't, you're kind of creating your your universe, if you like. Um, I mean, what about things like uh, the sh- like you, you use Stephen King, but sort of yeah. Stephen King also kind of has yeah. his own his books talk to each other. I've never quite quite worked out if there if there really is a King universe as such um, or not. You know, um, how did you deal with that? How did you sort of approach that? Yeah, I mean, I dare say there are people who have probably tried to plot out the Stephen King universe. You know, I've, I've, I, I didn't really attempt to do that or worry too much about it. Um, I mean, you know, I think that was really influential for a lot of people, the way that Stephen King, you know, I, I was reading King back in the 80s as a kid and remember loving it when I would come across these little Easter eggs in the books and you think, oh my, that's from another book and this is all happening in the same world. And I think that's one of the things that sort of stayed with me and made me really attracted to this idea. Um, and it, I guess you can't really deal with American horror without dealing with Stephen King. There's just, you know, he looms so large over modern American genre that you just kind of have to deal with him. Mm. And, and so, you know, I, I found like, there, were, there were obviously a couple of things I knew I was going to include. And then along the way, just other things started creeping in without me even in, intending on them being there. Um, <clears throat> and I didn't worry too much about the extended sort of King universe-ness of it. Um, I just sort of thought, okay, well, if, if it works for me, I'm going to use it. You know, it's like... A lot of these, there are there are, there are kind of certain auteurs in the book who are you know quite prevalent who pop up more than once, and you know he kind of has to be one of them, because like not only just in terms of the influence his books have had, but there are so many films based on his work as well. You know, some of many of which are garbage. Let's be honest, but there are some classic ones along the way that have you know affected genre cinema in themselves. So you kind of have to deal with him. Mm, yeah yeah i i i'm thinking another of those sort of like master sort of intelligences that you have uh, hovering over everything uh, it's probably david lynch isn't it is he's, he's yeah uh, i mean a it's, huge influence there um you know lynch for me is kind of like one of if not the preeminent 
genre filmmaker of like the last 20, 30 years and often, you know, isn't really given credit for being that or, you know, it's like, well, obviously like mainstream film criticism probably doesn't even really want to consider the idea of Lynch being a genre filmmaker because he's, you know, he's theirs, he belongs to the art house. And I'm like, no, like Lynch's movies are fucking scary mm. and they're, mm. and they're odd and they're frightening and they're unsettling. And he does all the things that a good horror movie is meant to do. And in many cases does them better than a lot of horror movies. And, you know, and he's dealing with the irrational and he's dealing with the supernatural. And you kind of look at these films especially sort of post Twin Peaks and most of them exist in a, in a supernatural universe. And those films have been so important for me. And I think will have been, and will continue to be sort of a major influence in the genre. You just kind of think I've, I'm, you know, I've got, I've got to deal with this and, and I want to deal with it because I find this stuff so fascinating. Yeah. I mean, Mulholland Drive has one of the best jump scares Ever. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. to, and it's totally done. I rewatched it recently to try to figure out why it, it 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 shocked me so much when I first saw it. And it's totally done via build up and anticipation. That you yeah. you're yeah. it's so you're built up and built up and built up and you think, okay, it's gonna be an anticlimax and it isn't. It's just yeah. sort of yeah. like it's... And because it has that thing of which Lynch does so well, which is, you know, something I always appreciate in horror movies is dread. It's mm. it's it's not even about jump scares. I mean, he pulls a brilliant one off there. But to me, being able to build an atmosphere of dread is so much more important. Oh, yeah. Know? Yeah. Yeah. And that's what Lynch does so well. Like, um, well, Lost Highway is a good example of that. Yeah. But, but all of his films, I, he's a little bit like, and this is going to be maybe sound like a, a tangential, uh, but the, my first time watches of Lynch and my first time watches of a Tarantino film, I'm always acutely aware of the danger the characters are in that at any right. point something horrible could happen <laughs> and I'm, I'm almost kind of watching them thinking i'll enjoy this more the second time around because I'll, I'll i'll sort of be able to relax and just watch it instead of sort of hanging on with my fingernails to uh you know like watching the span ranch part of uh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. And that's a and that's a great trick to be able to pull as a filmmaker if you can if you can manage that because obviously you know a part of you is thinking when it, whenever you sit down to watch a film you're like well this is one of the, this is the protagonist or this is one of the main characters so they're probably not going to die before the end of the film but if the film can place you in a position where you think they might then that's that's some seriously good filmmaking. And I mean, well, in the case of, of Lynch, you just you have absolutely no idea. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, that jump scare, that guy doesn't turn up ever again. That's the you, know, you never see him. It's like a vignette almost, you know. Um, uh, I, oh, by the way, love the title as well, Twilight's Last Screaming, because it comes from oh, one of my a Burt Lancaster movie that I remember watching with my mum and dad years ago, Twilight's Last Gleaming, where. He uh, he uses like a multi sort of divides the screen up as well. I think it's Robert Aldrich as a director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, good. Um, I kind of I you know uh, the first one, the England Screaming, sort of came to me as a title fairly early on. So when it came to writing this one, I kind of thought, well, should I continue in a similar vein? Um, and then I sort of came up with that title, and I thought, oh well, I don't know, is it too is it too much of a pun? Is it? Uh, 
And uh, I, I did an event last year where I sort of did a and a about England Screaming and, and sort of mentioned that the, the second book was coming and they asked me what it was called. And I, and I sort of said, well, this, the working title is this. And I, it got a round of applause. So I kind of thought, oh, well, maybe I'll stick with it. Yeah, yeah. No, and it also, it has that, it's, it's like the, the uh, Richard Burton sort of cover um, that it's... Uh, uh, for the first one, that it's that recognisable film that yet you haven't seen that much, you know? Yeah, Sorry, yeah. You, you went away for a second there. But... Sorry, yeah, no, I had a, there was a, a call coming through, so... Ah, no worries, no worries. Um, yeah, it's it's that sort, again, it's that sort of film that, you know, pr probably isn't that, that um, hugely, isn't that hugely well-known, but... Uh, but at the same time, seems really redolent of its time and the paranoia of the nuclear uh, aspect and all that. And, and that's something else I wanted to, to talk about. Sort of like you have the parallax organization going throughout the book and there's this real sense of paranoia. So if that's almost like that's the chord that you're playing for the for the book, you know, if, if England has things falling apart, the center cannot hold, then America has this sort of paranoia of stuff going on underneath. Yeah, it's. I mean, again, one of one of the things I really wanted to do with this book, I, I think it's there in England Screaming to a degree, but I really wanted to sort of expand it in this book. Was the notion that, um, you know, I don't I don't want to be limited by what people think of as horror, mm. you know, because all right, yeah, there are there are certain you know genre elements that people expect. But if you, if you look at a film like The Parallax View, which is a film I've always loved. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad. And I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No one can tell me that's not a horror movie. It might not be a horror genre movie, but it's, it, you know, it's basically saying, you know, they are, they are, they're out to get you and uh, they know, you know, everything that you're doing. And in the end, they will get you. There's, there's, there's no escape. And it's like, mm. that's pretty horrifying. And so again, yeah, that was, and the way it links into sort of sort of corporatism as well, it's sort of like they're just this sinister corporation that no one knows anything about. And you sort of think, well, that, you know, that ties into a lot of modern anxieties. And so I really wanted to tap into that and sort of have them lurking behind the book as well, because the book is, 
as much about the sort of horrors of corporatism as it is about politics. And certainly in, you know, modern America, that seems to be, you know, kind of all too apt, really. Yeah, I mean, all of those thrillers from the 70s had sort of horror aspects to them. I mean, the Marathon Man, the most famous scene is the dentist scene. And the yeah. Three Days of the Condor is is just, you know, a, a, a chase scene, but with, with a hugely violent, you know, star, you know, at the beginning. Um, where else would you put the star? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, even 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 those films are sort of, you know, slightly resolve them. To some degree, they have happy endings. But sort of the parallax view is just sort of like, no, there's no getting away from this. It's much bigger than you. You can try and fight the system, but the system will always win. You know, and it's a pretty sort of horrifying, bleak view of the world. And, you know, I just kind of thought, well, that's, you know, that's just going to fit in know, into into sort of my view of things. No problem at all. Um, you know, and it's the same with using something like Taxi Driver, which again, you know, not a genre film, but uh, you know, certainly more than one person has uh, has classified it as as a form of horror film. I think um, David Cronenberg, I think, included it on a list of his favourite horror films, as did Ramsey Campbell, I believe. And again, yeah, it's 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 not a genre film. It's not about supernatural, anything supernatural, but it, in its kind of vision of humanity. It's it's completely horrifying in what it shows you. Yeah, and I I don't know that that coda that it has as well of um, Sybil Shepherd getting to the taxi and them having that yeah. dre dreamy conversation. And then he sees himself in the mirror and it's yeah it, that that's that's Freddy Krueger coming back <laughs> at the end of the Nightmare on Elm Street, isn't it? That's Carrie. Yeah. That's the hand coming out of the grave after Carrie. It's the you know you think everything's okay, no, it isn't. You yeah. know. Um, yeah, no, I would, I would argue that, uh, I would argue Taxi Driver very, I, let's reclaim everyone for genre. Everything's genre when it comes Absolutely. to Absolutely. <laughs> social realism is just a genre in dirty well, clothes true, and torn yeah. jeans, you know. Absolutely. So, um, uh, I mean, this, this book and, and your, your previous one, they, they really also, as well as discovering new films, they maybe want to go back and rewatch films um that 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 you you mention and more than films as well also also tv because you, you you use quite a lot of tv in here you twin peaks obviously is a big influence tv film because you've got firewalks with me but also rod serling and that's another audacious sort of inclusion the narrator that 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 sort of comes from a place of you know as 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 in the first book where i you know included certain kind of English TV programs that I thought were sort of important. And obviously there's a very rich history of sort of British genre TV. Um, and I knew I wanted to do something similar here. It's like, I, I do like the books to try and be representative, it, it representative, even though they're not kind of meant to be best ofs or, you know, how to go about building a, you know, a, 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 a recommended watching list or whatever. Um, but I, I do like to try and be representative. And so I kind of thought, well, you know, I should do The Twilight Zone because, it again, it looms very large. And then I was like, yeah, but, you know, there's there's so much of it and there's so many classic episodes that it feels kind of wrong just to pick out one or two and throw them in there. And I was like, what, what should I do? And then, yeah, that whole notion just kind of popped into my head. I was like, oh, I you know, I do Rod Serling. I do The Man behind the stories and that's kind of and then it you know it gets into the, there's lots of sort of meta games in these books 
But I was like, yeah, no, perfect. He's the one writing all these stories down. He's the man entrusted to sort of tell the secret history of the world. And, you know, and obviously people are going to want him out of the way because he knows too much. So it, it kind of all just came together. And, you know, and also in the way that I think he represents a, a, a sort of different way of looking at the world mm. and what what the Twilight Zone was and that there was definitely kind of a morality behind it. Um, and I kind of thought that contrasted nicely with a, with a sort of increasingly amoral world. Um, so yeah, it was that was one of those those eureka moments where it all just got. I hadn't planned it; it just all came together, and I was like, right, I, I know what he is. I know what he's doing in the book. He feels like he's coming from a sort of Eisenhower sort of sensibility, yeah. doesn't he? he Feel you know, yeah, a guy in a suit and tie, telling you know, telling you let's go through this crazy doors and see see what's on the other side yeah but, and, and uh, this is and you know and he watches the world falling apart and he can't do anything about it it's mm. just his his job is just to chronicle it and when you you and you start coming towards i mean i was going to say you start coming towards the present day but of course you start the the book with the witch uh which is a, a fairly a recent uh example of what some people have called elevated horror i know not me <laughs> i know i know that that's a controversial term and uh um i i'm i'm not as bothered by that term i i kind of like my horror to be grungy and not grun you know i, I quite like those distinctions to exist even i get i get the distinction i i would prefer to call it art house horror or something like that right. elevated just max of snobbery and, yeah that's and true and and especially when you and you look you look at the sort of so-called elevated genre films today, and you kind of think, well, they're not really doing as much as I like a lot of them. They're not really doing anything different to a lot of the stuff we saw back in the seventies, which were certainly not deemed elevated at the time. Mm. You know, they're just intelligent horror. You know, that often have political, social subtexts or whatever, and you sort of think, well, that's been around for quite a while. There's nothing particularly new or elevated about that. Yeah, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think the example of the witch, for instance, that that film you could imagine being made at any any point in the in, from the sixties on, really. You know, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, a, it's a period, it's a period film, and yeah, and it and it's and it's a horror movie made by someone who sort of loves Ingmar Bergman, but yeah. and but you know, I'm I'm completely cool with that. I think Ingmar Ingmar Bergman's very kind of under uh, underrated as a as a as a director who's had an influence on genre and who's a lot of whose films are kind of quite close to it. I think Virgin Spring is is a, a remake of Taken. I mean, not a remake because he'd have to have a time machine, but it's, <laughs> it's basically the it's basically the first sort of daddy revenge film, you know, of like yeah, what yeah. what did you do with my daughter? Okay, right. Yeah, no, no, no. And I'm actually, you know, I'm about to write an essay which sort of starts which traces the whole line of you know Virgin Spring up through Last House, then to all the Last House ripoffs, and you kind of think. And, you know, this art house classic has sort of resulted in all these like horribly grungy exploitation movies that nonetheless have a lot of which still have a, like a very strong political social subtext, which is kind of interesting. So, yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, you look at Hour of the Wolf, which is obviously the kind of most overt horror movie that Bergman made. And you sort of think, well, Lynch, obviously, watch this. This is so close to a lot of what Lynch does. So, and, you know, I'm really, I think it's, it's great when you kind of get that kind of cross-pollination of influences. 
because instead of just having everyone trying to you know do jump scares and make Blumhouse movies, you're getting new kinds of horror movies that are drawing upon different traditions and, mm. and therefore giving everything a slightly different spin, which I think is great. Yeah, and different cultures. I mean, that's the the thing about the inter, the international aspect of, of of that, which is you know watching Japanese horror rejuvenates horror in the nineties. You know, yeah, the, yeah. and and even these days, we've got. I uh, just recently watched a Taiwanese horror film called The Sadness, which. Um, oh yes, I've not watched that yet. Uh, it's 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 pretty good. I mean, it's pretty nasty. It's it's got quite a lot of nasty stuff in it that is is and gory. Uh, but yeah, you know, you, it's one of those films that it's like if you if you think you're bored of zombie movies, it's probably uh, it, it's probably gonna gonna argue against that. It's gonna it's gonna be a good argument that there's still blood to be squeezed in right. that particular gen- generic orange. Yeah, I, mean, I remember what as as a, as a genre fan, you know, the '90s were a pretty bleak time, and I remember sort of hearing about this little Japanese movie that was meant to be good. And, and, and I was like, Oh, well, that's cool. You know, it'd be, it'd be great if there was a good horror movie out and going to see ring at the ICA in London and just being like, you know, Jesus Christ, that is, I haven't, you know, (laughs) that's just like the best thing I've seen in God knows how long. Um, And just then getting totally into that Japanese new wave of horror and thinking, Oh, thank God, you know, like there is still some life in horror. Because the '90s were so sort of moribund, generally for kind of genre films, um, and yeah, you know that was. I actually, I've written a couple of like smaller companion books to go along with the big books. Mm. Uh, so, so I wrote one after England Screaming uh, called Three Mothers One Father, which is about Euro horror, and there's actually another one coming soon, which is about Australian genre movies, uh, called That Fatal Shore. Um, but I was originally thinking about doing a Japanese book. Um, and, and again, I just got slightly, I was like, I don't know if I'm quite ready to do it yet. It was more, it was just a case of like, it's such an alien culture. And although I know the films really well, I've never actually been to Japan and I felt a bit wary about writing about it. Could you, could you write in that voice? Could you have yes, that voice? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. So I haven't got there yet, but yeah, it could still happen. Well, I mean, I would propose uh, a, a because uh, now you've got you've used screaming twice in the in your titles it has to be the screaming trilogy so you have yes. like, like the dollars <laughs> trilogy you, know, you have to have a you have to have a third entry yeah, there, which, there which... are a couple there are a couple of options i'm playing with you know the, because because the euro horror book i wrote was quite a condensed little book I really did just because I didn't at that point I had no idea that I was going to write more of these and I got offered the opportunity to do that and I thought oh well at least I can sort of do a little Euro horror book as well but obviously there are a lot more films European horror films out there and you know people who who like these books kept saying to me oh are you going to do like a proper European one so that's I, I could conceivably do that I've also considered doing a kind of oldie England screaming and going back and doing a lot of gothic stuff that I didn't do first time around. Right, right. So, because I, I just kind of thought in writing England screaming, I was like, it's going to be mostly contemporary with a couple of callbacks. But obviously, there's such a tradition of historical kind of gothic horror in the UK that there's, there's a whole bunch of stuff that I haven't really touched 
And I was like, well, I could go back and do that. So you know, mm. Mm. All, yeah, of no. the, all of these things might yet happen. Oh, it's such a it's such a sort of uh, fertile ground to go on, and especially the idea of sort of how to interconnect them. I mean, you, you just mentioning Euro horror, I'm starting to think, how would you connect like Cannibal Holocaust, perhaps to, <laughs> to sort of Mario Bava or what's that Spanish film that they made about would you kill a child? Oh yeah, which is which is actually in the Euro horror book, and I did I did get that in there. Ah so, right, okay. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but no, no, yeah. There's so much, um, and it would be really fun to do. So maybe once I've recovered from this one, <laughs> I'm sorry, Sean. No rest, no rest for the wicked. <laughs> Come on, what are you doing talking to me? Get right in. I want another one, please. No, I mean, it's... By the way, does David Thompson know about uh, these books? Has, have you had any communication with him? I've not had any communication with him. Um, I, I, I honestly have no idea. I just, I just wonder because I think imitation is the best form of flattery. You know, it's like yeah. I mean, I would hope he'd be flattered. Um, I, you know, I'd like, I'd like I said, I think they they ultimately are quite different books. Um, in in terms of what they what they're setting out to do and and the kind of form they take. Um, but yeah, that was definitely my inspiration. I never wanted to sort of hide away from that. It was sort of like, yeah, you know, I totally got this from from Thompson, and I, I you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit that. That's fine. Mm. Um, I, yeah, I would hope he'd be flattered. I, I don't imagine that David Thompson would like very many of these kinds of films. I know there are some genre films he likes, but I, I imagine some of this stuff might be well below his radar. <laughs> um, but yeah, I hope he'd be I hope he'd be flattered by you know someone sort of paying homage to him anyway. Yeah, no, no, I think I, I think so. I mean, I've had I started reading Suspects actually quite recently, a couple of weeks ago. I'm just sort of dipping into it, and I was thinking he's copied everything off Sean. <laughs> 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 um, uh, but yeah, I, I I do think they are distinct. Um, I mean, you do a lot more. Uh, I mean, he sort of segues into sort of like. A, that he's actually reacting to these. So every every now and again, David Thompson, the critic, sort of appears and says, "Oh, yeah. what am I thinking about now?" And whereas if your book, I think there's much more of a, you know, this is from the diary of, or this is a, a letter by, or you know, it's much more, it's closer to that gothic Dracula thing of like, you know, the original novel of Dracula was like the first right, film, yeah, found footage film. You know? approach, yeah. yeah, yeah, and 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 that again, that's something I really like doing with these books. Is that kind of ventriloquism? It's sort of like actually inhabiting the films from the inside out, taking on the voice of the characters. It's something I sort of work really hard on. Um, I mean, you know, I started as a screenwriter anyway, so I'm sort of used to kind of writing in character, but. You know, when I sit down and rewatch these films, I'm forever kind of noting down little scraps of dialogue and whatever else and, and, and just trying to recreate that because that's just one of the most enjoyable things about about doing these books. Uh, and I think that's, yeah, that's quite different from what Thompson does. And yeah. and Suspects is, is very much about the movies. And that's what that's kind of one of his great subjects is the what are the movies and, and how have they let us down and, and all this kind of thing. Whereas I think I'm looking at it a slightly different way and looking at the movies as representative of, of, of something of, you know, what's producing these, these films, what, what are they reflecting in, you know, in, in reality? Yeah. Yeah. And sort of what, what's, you know, banging ideas together, which are, which are about what are we scared of? And, and, you know, you start yeah. to get lots of 
lots of dissonance and you start to get lots of things chiming as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's some of these things, you know, some of the connections in the books are, are you know, are fairly obvious. Um, and then sometimes I just get the sort of crazy urge to s smash one thing off another. And it's purely an instinct. I'm just sort of like, yeah, that'd be interesting. And then afterwards I look back and go, uh, yeah, maybe, you know, kind of maybe there is a thread to be drawn there. I wasn't necessarily conscious of, but, you know, it's just sort of, yeah, playing around with stuff and seeing what happens. I mean, it's funny because you said about it being organic at the at the beginning as well. And I, I think horror, it affects us, fire our unconscious, subconscious, I should say, rather than unconscious, I guess. Um, so the, the, the creation of horror, I mean, it, it makes sense that it, it also comes from that sort of process. Yeah, um, and I, I I sort of learned very quickly just to sort of go along with that. There were there were definitely times when I was like, "Can I do that? Can I get away with that?" Is that just, you know? I remember in in the first book where I you know I wrote the Straw Dogs chapter, and it ended up crossing over with the League of Gentlemen, and I just kind of thought, "Can I get away with that?" But it seemed to make a weird kind of sense, and I just thought. Oh, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> you know, and, um, <laughs> it and, and, you know, people have remarked on it and, and, and seemed completely cool with it. So I sort of thought, all right, well, you know, I'll just I'll keep on rolling the dice and see what comes up because it seems to work. I mean, one of the you know, one of the nicest things people say to me is that no matter how bizarre some of these kind of overlaps are, they all seem to work that the characters seem to sort of fit with each other, even though they might be these completely disparate films, you know, people sort of say, but it always seems quite natural in the books when that happens, which is great. I mean, that's what, you know, you strive for. I was wondering as well, you've mentioned a couple of times that you, you, um, uh, you, your career, initial career as a screenwriter, it, I do a bit of screenwriting as well. And I find that this idea of thinking about characters either side of the story is it seem, seems to be a sort of part of the practice of screenwriting. I mean, I, I spend a hell of a lot of time worried about how much money they have and where did they get their money and what's <laughs> the, what do they have in their pockets and how, you know, it drives me nuts when I'm watching a film because I'm thinking, well, how are they going to get home? They're driving. <laughs> Who's gonna, you know? Why are they driving? We've, we've just watched them drink six whiskeys. How are they getting into a car now? Um, <laughs> You know, mad men never never made any yeah, sense. Yeah, no, you, you sound like a friend of mine who I just saw, uh, I went to see Men With last night, and he mm. kind of came out asking loads of those sorts of questions. It was a bit kind of like, if you're approaching that, that film on those terms, I'm not sure you're approaching it in the right way. But Yeah, I'm a, I, I, I get it. I get that I'm wrong. I, 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 totally, <laughs> I, I feel the familiar feeling of being in the wrong. <laughs> that I, it's kind of I live in. It's called my universe, but I, I just sort of it's a similar thing when I'm reading your books. Is it's I get the feeling of a guy who's thinking, yeah, but what did they do before that? And what's you know how did they? And if they're a psychiatrist, what were their other patients like? You know. <laughs> yeah, I actually I don't generally spend much time obsessing about that stuff mm. outside of these books, but yeah, it's it's sort of really interesting. To look at the films in that way, you know, certainly when I'm when I'm writing these, you sort of go, well, what what did happen to this person next? You know, where do they go from there? Um, yeah, it's, it's it's just because, you know, a lot of these movies, I you know, I I I, I I've loved for a long time, and I've spent a lot of time 
they've spent a lot of time in my head and I've in many cases I've watched them many times and they do kind of take on a life of their own mm. even if you've never really consciously thought about it all, all of a sudden it's sort of like you know these characters and these faces so well mm. that it becomes quite a natural process to sort of go all right well let's see where they go next I, lo- I love the story you did of uh, about Wendy from Wendy Torrance from The Shining, because because that was that <laughs> again being in the wrong constantly. I kind of never really think about Wendy once once they're through that window. I'm sort of like, oh, Jack's still in the <laughs> overlook. He's always been in the overlook, and it's like, yeah, yeah, Wendy and Danny, who whatever. Um, but that idea that Wendy's like. She <laughs> would spend yeah. the rest of her life just going, what a stupid idiot I was. What <laughs> did I see in that guy? What a huge mistake, you know. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, I, that's that's one of the examples I'd use. When, when people sort of say, occasionally sort of say, well, why, you know, why, why do you say these books are criticism as well as fiction? And I'm like, well, you know, if you look at a chapter like the Wendy chapter, that's that's me very consciously trying to engage with, the, the the idea and which i don't necessarily agree with but the idea that uh, certainly king agrees with it i think is that the shining the film is is quite a misogynist film mm. and that wendy's just this kind of shrieking dish rag um and i don't entirely agree with that because i think kubrick's doing something very specific in that film but at the same time i wanted to try and engage with that idea and especially when you sort of when it came up with the idea of like playing it off against the lighthouse, which I think is a film that in many ways you can see the influence of the shining in and is about, you know, toxic masculinity to use the current buzzword. And I kind of thought, well, yeah, if I do that, then I can kind of give Wendy the chance that she didn't really have in the shining to be a sort of full blooded character. And maybe I'm not saying The Shining needs a corrective, but it, it can in some ways function as that, you know, and, and, and it's not it, it's now about this woman. It's not the woman sort of seen through the eyes of her crazy husband. It's like about the woman herself and how that feels to have gone through that experience and to sort of try and reclaim yourself, mm. you know. Mm. Um, and, you know, and I've say, I you know, I've, I've sort of seen women go through kind of experiences with tyrannical partners and, and, and I just sort of wanted to approach it in that way mm. and to kind of give her something back. Yeah. Give her sort of an agency and an ability yeah. to, to look at her own story and say, yeah. what the, what was I thinking? What was <laughs> yeah. thinking? Going to a hotel with this madman who'd broken yeah. my son's arm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and it's as I say, it's about her reclaiming her story, and so much of this book is about stories. And you know, mm. um, obviously, it's a it's a collection of stories, but it's also about storytelling. And a lot of the stories are about storytelling and that kind of meta level. And and so yeah, it's another instance of you know, let's let's talk about story and what that means and what having your own story. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and, and and reclaiming it, and yeah, uh, absolutely brilliant. And both books come highly recommended. Um, uh, in fact, today, uh, just before I came on this uh, this call, I bought a copy of um, uh, Twilight's Last Screaming for the guy who does the music for the podcast, Elliot Atkins. That's that's going out to him uh, for his oh, birthday. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, so there's another there's another. Uh, 
you, you could go and have a look on your Amazon reviews. And <laughs> <laughs> track that as it flies flies to Liverpool. I think it's going. Um, but I wanted to ask you, Sean, finally for a, a recommended book, uh, a film book uh, recommendation for for our listeners. Right. Well, um, I've you know having listened to some of your other podcasts, I know that people don't necessarily limit themselves to one. So yeah. I'll toss out a couple. Sure. Um, you know, we've already mentioned suspects, so I obviously, you know, would would recommend that, but we've also covered it to some degree. Um, you know, but certainly suspects and Kim Newman's nightmare movies are probably two books that the the, the my books wouldn't exist without. You know, suspects obviously as a kind of template for them but nightmare movies was a really critical book for me growing up as a kind of a horror fan you know and i i've still got the kind of coffee table books i had back in the 70s and 80s all the sort of horror horror coffee table books you used to get which were great which were formative for me but a lot of them sort of pay short very short shrift to modern horror the, sort of the, the contemporary horror of the time they're very much about universal and hammer and all that kind of thing and when i I remember like getting nightmare movies and all of a sudden here was this guy paying attention to the movies that I was seeing at the time and, and giving them, giving them their due. And, you know, that nightmare movies definitely sort of shapes the way I look at horror movies to a large degree. Um, I'm going to give a quick call out, which I think I, Jonathan Rigby already did on your podcast to Kayla Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women. Um mm. I've, you know, I've known Kayla for quite a long time. I think it's a, it's a fantastic book. There's a new edition of it coming out this year, a 10th anniversary edition. So uh, we'll plug that one quickly as well. And thought you have to come the, on the podcast. Yes. Well, you know, I think, I think you should definitely get her on because I think it'd be yeah. great. Um, and I sort of wanted to mention one I've read fairly recently, which I don't think anyone has covered yet. It's a book called Always Crashing in the Same Car by Matthew Spector. All right. Um, and it's not entirely about film it's about LA and a lot of it is sort of Hollywood related and it talks about it's kind of uh, I think one of the influential things about Kayla's book is that sort of mixture of memoir and criticism which really hadn't been done much when at the time but you it's kind of you're seeing more and more of in recent years and this book does a, a lot of that um, but it covers all sorts of kind of interesting half forgotten figures like, you know, Carol Eastman, uh, Frank and Eleanor Perry, you know, uh, Tuesday Weld, people like that. It's a really fascinating book about the kind of lesser lights of L.A. Um, and, and one I really enjoyed reading. So I would recommend that as well. Tuesday Weld, great, great name. I remember her in Once Upon a Time in America. I think she yeah. has a prominent role in that film. Um that kind of, there's a horror film that's, <laughs> that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it sounds like that what's it Auntie Donna's big old house of fun everything's a drum everything's a horror film everything's a horror film. <laughs> it's it's kind of um yeah I don't know it's a little bit like comedy and tragedy isn't it it's it's really depends upon perspective rather than any intrinsic thing that you're looking at it's more like uh how you're looking at something rather than the thing you're looking at yeah, I mean, ultimately, uh, you know, uh, you take the sort of genre elements aside. You know, horror is an emotion, and mm. you don't you don't need a very specific set of, of, of genre codes to arouse that emotion in you. It's like anything can do it. So, you know, that's yeah, definitely something I'm interested in. What did you think of Men? 
Um, yeah, I, uh, I'm still sort of getting my head around it. I thought it was a, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a fascinating film. Um, it's, it's one I probably need to digest a bit more, but I'm just glad that stuff like that is getting made. It's sort of like ultimately what you think of it at the end of the day. It's not another IP. It's a genuinely sort of odd individual film um that you know goes to some very bizarre places and that's always nice to see but so, you, know. uh, you 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 kind of anticipated it when you said you know straw dogs plus league league of it's, it's <laughs> yeah. kind of exact that's the best description of men i've heard yet you know <laughs> so, yeah yeah no i really i i really liked it i i mean i think like a lot of people i'm slightly um I'm slightly befuddled by whether there's actually a, something being said, but there, yeah. or, or there's an answer, or, or some. But there are certainly a lot of interesting questions, you know. Well, and at the same time, I mean, look, obviously there is there is you know definitely a subtext to it, although I'm not entirely clear, as you say, on what specifically what's being said. Um, but at the same time, it's like, you know, going back to what we were saying about elevated genre movies is that I do find with some of the recent genre movies is that they think the way to be important is to sort of let the subtext overwhelm the text. Mm. And whereas what once upon a time might have been just kind of something underlying the story is like now you're sort of you find yourself being beaten over the head with it to the extent where it's sort of like, all right, I get that this is an allegory. I get it. I get it can't we just have some actual horror you know and men although men is not subtle at the same time it's like you're not entirely sure it's a bit slippery you're not quite sure what the message of it is and i and i think we could probably do with a bit more of that in horror at the moment mm -hmm. yeah i mean i'm i'm a real i'm kind of like a little bit the enemy of explanation i don't mm. horror, horror movies are always they always, not only horror movies, actually, I find, I'll give you an example that always comes to mind is Minority Report. Minority Report, right up until the bit where he finds out he is the guy who kills the guy, is is great. I love it. Absolutely brilliant. And then the minute he sort of, it becomes Columbo and it becomes, ah, I see what you did. You did this and you did that and you went there and you went there. And it's just like, ah, oh, not, not that I've got anything against Columbo. It's one of my favorite TV programs, but it, it just feels like a, a shift in, and as soon as you explain it, it's like, ah, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You know, and suddenly all the mystery and all the Philip yeah, K. Yeah, Dick yeah. creepiness disappears as, yeah yeah uh, and it, that sort of goes back to why i think lynch is such an important figure for horror because that is just that absolute refusal to explain anything and, and as much as that irritates some people i'm like no that is that's ultimately what's most frightening is, is when something's completely inexplicable yeah and that's inexplicable thing i think is a really positive quality in itself it's not just like i've not explained it's a really yeah. no this is a thing it's not an absence of explanation it's it's a, a mystery uh you know something that's resonant yeah um, and especially and it's and when it's when it's made by an artist you get the sense of they probably understand what they're doing on some level and it's not it's not just a bunch of random shit being thrown at the screen it's sort of like there's always a sense of a guiding intelligence behind lynch's movies even if they're not explained you know because it's sort of like it's, it's it would be very easy just to kind of go i'm gonna do a bunch of weird shit and not explain it um but i think you can tell when that's the case 
you know i've 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 certainly seen stuff recently where you sort of get to the end and you can sort of think you didn't really know where this was going or what you were doing and i, and I never feel like that with lynch as, as as bizarre as the movies are yeah yeah he always has endings you know and and endings are sort of proof of life of narrative yes. you know it's like yeah. you, you whereas there are some films that just stop and you think yeah this could have stopped there was a film i saw recently in Cannes, and i won't say the title because it isn't out for ages so i want people to make up their own minds but that film could have stopped at any point from five minutes in to, to an hour 25 minutes right stopped at any point and you, it would have been equally satisfying and i'm not sure if that's a bad thing or a good thing but it does to my mind it does suggest that that wasn't a feature film right i was watching i don't know uh, installation or yeah. something else it just wasn't it wasn't doing enough to to justify it sort of like arc you know it didn't have an arc essentially yeah uh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. I'll tell you. I'll tell you the name of the film off air. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but before I cut, before I cut and leave you with that tantalising, uh, that tant- see, no explanation. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Sean, and and congratulations on the book, the the England Screaming and uh, Twilight's Last Screaming, soon to be completed. The trilogy with. Uh, Screaming all around the world. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you. Thanks very much. So that was uh, my conversation with Sean. It was a lot of fun. Um, uh, I really enjoyed talking to him. He knows his stuff, and he's such a such an imaginative response to to so many films that I have very close to my heart. His recommended books were David Thompson's uh, Suspects, Kim Newman's Nightmare Movies, Kim Newman, former guest of the show, Matthew Spector's Always Crashing in the Same Car, and uh, Kaylee Janice's um, House of Psychotic Women, who hopefully we will have on soon uh, in the future. Okay, thank you everybody for listening. Thanks go to Ellie Atkins for the music, Ali Harwood for the artwork, and again, once more, thank you for listening and for helping me out in the publicity department. Until next week, take care. on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.